Good morning. Wait a minute. I can't see very well. Oh, get my glasses? Oh, good idea. Good morning. Now I can see. Happy Easter. Good to see you. He is risen. I'm going to trust that you said he is risen indeed. My heart is sorely missing being together this morning, but I am thrilled to be able to open God's word with you this morning in Luke chapter 24. It's a passage about seeing. It's a passage about being given the equipment, the right prescription in order that we can see clearly who Jesus is. We've been looking at this idea all throughout Luke, the miracles uh, that give us certainty that Jesus is who he said he was. And here we come to the miracle of all miracles, the miracle that makes sense of those other miracles, namely the resurrection. We're going to be looking at it through the story that's familiar to many of you of the men that are on the road to Emmaus or the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus uh, in verses 13 to 35. If you haven't read that yet, hit pause and have somebody read that out loud. Okay, we're back, and I'm going to trust that everybody's read uh, Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. And I want to walk through this. Like I said, this is the miracle that makes sense of all other miracles. There are three things that I just want us to understand about the resurrection here through these eyes. This, of course, is happening on Easter Day. It's the day after uh the it's the day after the women have gone to the tomb they didn't find his body there was great confusion uh, these two disciples we know one is cleopas we don't know who the other one is they're walking away from jerusalem they're dejected uh, and sad it tells us in verse 17 they had hoped that Jesus, in verse 21, was going to be someone who could redeem Israel, but now it appears that their hopes are dashed. But here, everything changes for them. They actually meet the risen Christ. They, he actually acts as their hosts and break the, breaks the bread and uh, does the blessing for them, and they recognize him for who he is, that time he disappears, but they return to Jerusalem. So what is it that they encounter on this road to Emmaus? Again, like I said, I want to suggest to you three things. The first is this. The disciples realize that the resurrection is real. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want you to know how important this is. There is a an idea out there that... Uh, the resurrection didn't actually have to happen, but rather you can just have faith that it happens and that will transform your life. There is actually that idea that comes in some explanations of, of this story here, the road to Emmaus. John Dominic Crossan, who is part of the Jesus Seminar, he's a scholar, uh, but he doesn't believe in the same way that you and I believe that the Bible is true and factual. He has a saying about the road to Emmaus. He 
says, Emmaus never happened, Emmaus always happens. You remember a little bit earlier in this series, we were talking about uh, how some people reserve things of faith for the upper story, uh, upstairs of the house, but they don't really affect the downstairs or they don't come into contact with the downstairs world of our material lives, things that we can smell and taste and listen to, touch, all of those things. And we've been saying that Jesus's miracles sort of shatter that. They bring the upper story crashing into the lower story. And that is the case here. As these disciples walk along and they realize that it is Jesus who is with them, they come to understand that the resurrection is real. We see that as we go back through this chapter. We see so many details that tell us that this is uh, more than a story, more than just a, a parable about faith and believing, and then we'll see Jesus. No, this is about an event that actually happened, that we're given details in the story, we're, we're given the idea that women were the, rec the witnesses of the resurrection. And, and again, women were not credible witnesses in those days, so you would never give that detail if it wasn't true. We're told names like Cleopas, and you can go back when this was written, and you could ask Cleopas, what, what happened? There, there is the ring of authenticity to this that you wouldn't have in legend, you wouldn't have in fairy tale. And it's so important for us because we can put stock in it. We can land our feet on the solid rock of the resurrection. In fact, Leslie Newbegin, very different than Crossan. Leslie Newbegin, another theologian, he was a British missionary to India. He was asked one time, uh, in uncertain times, kind of like our own, it's the first time I've mentioned coronavirus this morning, uh, but we live in uh, a time of uncertainty. We don't know how things are going to play out. And, and somebody came to Newbegin in his time and said, so are you an optimist or a pessimist about the state of things? And Newbegin said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The fact of his resurrection was the fulcrum on which he could uh, move the world. It was the prescription by which he saw everything else. So are we optimists or are we pessimists about our time? Well, let's start here. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. What does that mean? It means that he has overcome sin, death, the devil, the whole dominion. It means that the world is hurtling not towards its destruction, but towards its redemption, toward the reconciliation of all things. It is the fact that changes history. And the disciples, these second-tier disciples, they weren't the inner tier, the twelve, but they were the second-tier disciples like you and me, these disciples, general followers of Jesus, realize this truth and it begins to change how they uh, interact with the world. We're going to see this more in just a minute. What is it that they understood? How do the pieces begin to under, uh, fall into place for them? Well, that's the second thing. The resurrection is the fulcrum of history. What is it that they understand? Well, first of all, let's look at what they were looking for. Verse 20 tells us, 
they're giving the history. Don't you know everything that happened with regards to Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him? So that's the synopsis of these events that they think their companion doesn't know. But their interpretation or the reason why they're looking sad now, the reason why they're going away from Jerusalem is they had hoped that he was the one who had redeemed Israel. They had hoped that he was the political Messiah, the one who would set them free from Roman oppression. That is what their hope was. Uh, they were hoping in a sociological redemption. And this points out to us that one of the reasons why we struggle in life with happiness, contentment, one of the reasons why we struggle to uh, maintain a joyful sort of walk, confident in the midst of things like coronavirus, in the midst of things like economic fallout, all of those things, is that we're looking to other things or other types of redemption rather than the redemption that is our biggest need. We, like these disciples, look sociologically. If our politics, if our economy, if all of these things can be aligned, then we would have hope. Or maybe we look psychologically. If, if my family of origin hadn't acted thus and so, if I hadn't been nurtured and raised in this way, then I would have a whole different approach to the world. Or we look at our biology. If my genetic makeup were different, if I weren't just so prone to depression, or if I weren't so uh, uh, subject to these, these fits of anxiety, well, then, then it would be different for me. But what Jesus tells the disciples is that you didn't see, you didn't understand what I was about because you were looking in the wrong place. And we get that when he says in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's so interesting, verse chapter 24 of Luke, there's three different appearances here. There's the appearance to the women, there's the appearance to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then there's the appearance that Jesus has in the upper room when he is among all of those disciples. And in each one, in each one, the, the people that are seeking Jesus are brought back to the fact that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. They remembered his words. That's what it says in verses 7 and 8. We see it here in 25 to 27. We see it again in, in verses uh, uh, 44 and 45. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here's the thing. Our story is his story. 
Our story is the story that goes all the way back to the garden of rebellion against the one who created us. It's this cosmic treason. It's the enmity between the man and the woman. One writer says about Genesis 3 that the rest of the Bible is a footnote to the the enmity that is there and the promise that God gave that though the certain serpent would strike his heel, he would crush its head. And so Jesus brings us back to the cross because it is there at the cross that Jesus deals with our ultimate need. Uh, the ultimate need that we have, it's not the political powers out there. It's not our psychology. It's not our biology. The ultimate need that we have is to have the redemption from our sins. It's the rebellion that each one of us has in our hearts against the cosmic King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our greatest problem dealt with on the cross. The resurrection stands as a monument to its completed work. It stands as a fact that tells all of us today, your greatest need is dealt with. Everything else uh, falls in place now. These disciples begin to understand that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Their glasses, the prescription, they can see because they know that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they understand the significance of his suffering death, the crucifixion that stands as the fulcrum of his story because it provides the redemption and the reconciliation that we need. One person who understood this was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was persecuted by the communists, sent to prison, the Gulag. Uh, he wrote about his experience there in the Gulag archipelago. A and he gets the centrality of the story that required the cross, that required Jesus to go into the tomb in order that he might be ri uh, ar arisen again. He says in the Gulag Archipelago, he says, Gradually it was disclosed to me, I came to see, that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through every human heart. Brothers and sisters, what, what are you putting your hope in today? Are you putting your hope in politics? Are you putting your hope in science to solve the problem of the pandemic? Are you putting your hope in social distancing? What are you putting your hope in? Jesus, throughout all of his ministry, has been going to the Word, and he's been saying, here is the basis for our hope. Do you understand it? Can you see if not, let me interpret it for you. And this is where I want to go thirdly. Uh, we see that the disciples realize the truth of the resurrection, realize the significance of the resurrection. They understand it. And now they are transformed. They are transformed through this process. I have three subpoints for you. Cognition, ignition, and conflagration. 
I want to highlight cognition. In one sense, we've been talking about that all this morning, what they realize and, and how they realize its significance. But what I want you to see is that it happens at the will of the Father. Did you notice verse uh, 16? They don't recognize Jesus, and it's kind of weird. Um, you would think, even in his resurrected body, and I know he has a resurrected body, that they would have some hint that the person that they are walking with is Jesus, this one who they lost. But we're told in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is very similar language to what we see in chapter 18 of Luke, where Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection, um, the, the need for him to be killed. Um, and then it says in verse 34 of chapter 18, they, the disciples, understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. What we said then is true again, and it's, and it's reiterated for us, it's, it's emphasized for us, is that in order for us to see, we have to be made to see. We have to be allowed to see. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit coming and clearing away the glaucoma of our hearts in order that we can see clearly Jesus as he is for us. And note, how does Jesus do this for the disciples? I think this is really important. I've already sort of alluded to it. He does it by means of an expositional Bible study. This is one of the passages that we would go to in order to um, sort of ground our commitment to expository preaching. Jesus goes back and he says, it's been there the whole time. All that wrote Moses written and the prophets had written, was written in the Psalms we see in verse 44. All of these things, they all speak to me. They speak to Jesus Christ. But it was the work of Jesus to interpret these, to expound these truths. And that was the pathway for cognition. Again, I, I, I say this, one, to encourage us, to encourage us to continue to ask that God would help us to see. Perhaps you are in a uh, slow of heart to believe season in your life or a foggy season. Uh, don't blame yourself, but keep going back to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus who comes and walks with those who are slower of heart to believe. I love the patience of Jesus here to expound to us the truths and ask for him. Un, uh, unfetter my eyes that I can see clearly the wonderful things that are written in your law and your prophets the Psalms, and now that we see so clearly in the New Testament as well. And the Spirit will do that work. It's a prayer that he loves to answer. I, I would just also note uh, to be patient. You know, I, I sometimes go through these things. I can't imagine what Jesus thought of. I mean, Jesus, the best teacher in the world, and he has been expounding these things for his disciples for three years, and they didn't get it. 
Uh, hallelujah. Sometimes I feel like, you know, we've talked about this before. Maybe you feel like that with people in your family. And I think about that. You know, here we are. We're, we're staying at home. We're sheltering in place. We have our family. We can talk about these truths. We can go back and maybe repeat some things that we've said before. Don't be discouraged. Continue on, keep on keeping on, and trust, pray for the Holy Spirit to give that illumination, uh, the cognition that we need to see the truths. But go back to this. It, it is the gateway to, to the heart is through the mind, understanding these things that are written. The scriptures are so central to it. But then notice, and, and I want you to see, that the heart is ignited. We see that, verse 32, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, when he opened up the scriptures to, to us. Sometimes, and, and I will take some blame for this as a Presbyterian, we can be too cognitive, too in our heads about faith. There is a real experience for the disciples of Jesus. Their hearts burned within them as they understood who Jesus was and noticed that everything that had been about them begins to change. No longer were they dejected and sad like we saw uh, in, in verse 17. Uh, they stand looking sad. No longer are they walking away from Jerusalem. But that very hour, that very hour, and remember, it was late. You know, Jesus was going to keep going on, but they compel him and they say, come and stay with us for the hour is getting late. And it may be dangerous out there at night. It's dark. You can't see where you're going. But when this happens, when their hearts burn, when they realize the truth of who Jesus is, it is as if they were ignited and nothing could contain them anymore. And they begin to run back to Jerusalem because they have to share this uh, good news. They have to be with other people. It's no longer uh, good for them to be isolated. They have to be with other people and share the good news and say, the Lord has appeared to us but they can't even get it out because they have already heard. Once they got into the room, they're, they're, they're struck with the Lord has appeared to Simon. I feel a little bit bad for these two. You know, they're, they're going back the seven miles on the way to uh, Jerusalem. They've got this great news to share. And the minute that they burst in the door, they're, the Lord has appeared to Simon. You're like, wait a minute, I was just going to say that. But you see how excited everybody is once they realize the truth, once they realize what it means. There is a passion that is ignited in their hearts, in their souls. And I want you to note, it becomes a conflagration. It becomes a conflagration that spreads from Jerusalem into the known world and has come all the way home to our hearts here in Grand Rapids today. This is a fire that is still burning out of control. Sometimes we forget that and it takes an Easter remembering to go back and to say, I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic. The Lord has risen. Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb, and nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. What are the very last words of Acts? 
it went the the gospel went about unhindered unfettered nothing can stop it it's a conflagration that persecution can't stop it's a conflagration that uh, pestilence and plague can't stop it's a conflagration uh, that good science can't stop our unbelieving hearts can't st nothing can stop it jesus christ has risen from the dead hallelujah brothers and sisters what a joy it is to be together this easter to come to this story and to realize this truth may you no longer be dejected and sad may you no longer be going away from jerusalem but may we all together in our places in our communities as we come back together when the lord wills it May we, as it were, gird up our loins and run with our hearts burning the good news that Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, we pray on this Easter morning that you would help us to see all that's been written about you in the prophets, that you would speak, O Lord, that you would ignite uh, in us burning hearts that burn for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed Easter. Very soon, I hope, very soon, we will gather in some form or another. But for now, Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.